0: In the last 30, 40, 50 years, depending exactly when you start it in the US, there's obviously been a big rise in income inequality. One of the aspects of that phenomenon has been a decline in the labor share of income.
1: Hi, I'm Clementine Vanifonter. I'm an assistant professor of economics at the University of Toronto, and this is Inequality Talks. Anna Stansbury is an assistant professor of work and organization studies at MIT Sloan and core faculty at MIT Institute on Work and Employment Research. She's also a non-resident senior fellow at Peterson Institute for International Economics. Her research interests are in labor and macroeconomics, with a particular focus on labor market power and labor market institutions. The key motivating question for her work is how can we design the world of work to ensure vibrant growth, shared prosperity, and good jobs for all workers? We talked about her recent work with Larry Summers on the declining worker power hypothesis. Thank you very much, Anna, for being here with me today. Thanks, it's great to be here. I'm excited to have you talk about your important work with Larry Summers on the declining worker power hypothesis. What you do in this paper is really impressive because you try to provide a unified framework to understand some really key evolutions of the U.S. economy in in the past decade. And so I wanted to ask you first, tell us more about this hypothesis, what it is and why it's, it's relevant and important to understand what's going on with the American economy.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So um, the big trends that drove this research are really in three buckets. Basically, in the last 30, 40, 50 years, depending exactly when you start it, in the US, um, there's obviously been a big rise in income inequality. One of the aspects of that phenomenon has been a decline in the labor share of income. So a decline in the share of total income going to workers and a rise correspondingly in the share of income going to capital owners. So that's one of these big macro trends we've seen. And that's been quite a striking trend, particularly because until about the 80s, in many countries around the world, the labor share had been very stable. And it was actually considered to be one of these uh, canonical macroeconomic facts, the Kaldor facts, that the labor share was stable. So the decline in the labor share was striking and has been quite uh, particularly stark in the US. The second macro fact is a rise in corporate valuations and corporate profitability that doesn't seem fully justified by underlying fundamentals. So one way to think about that, for example, is a rise in the valuation of the stock market. If you add up the market capitalization of all the companies in the stock market, that seems much higher than is justified by the underlying growth rate of the economy. Um, and there are many other ways that you can measure that, but generally a rise in corporate profits, profitability and valuations. And then the third uh, striking trend in the last 40 years or so has been a decline in the average rate of unemployment in the U.S. without a corresponding increase in inflation. I mean, this excludes the COVID period, which has been a very strange period in terms of both unemployment and inflation. But from the 80s until February 2020, we saw this steady decline punctuated by recessions in the average rate of unemployment and that suggests to some that the natural rate of unemployment the rate of unemployment that you can reach without generating inflationary pressure has fallen so you have these three trends and you have various different macroeconomic explanations for those trends that that each of which is you know has different compelling arguments for and against things like globalization things like technological change things like monopoly power Uh, and we argue basically that the decline in worker power is the most compelling kind of big macroeconomic phenomenon that can explain some or all of these trends at the same time.
1: So the central concept behind this measure of the worker power that you talked about in your work is the notion of labor rents. So this is a concept that economists are using often, and I wanted to ask you if you could tell us what are these labor rents, how prevalent they are, and why it matters for our understanding of the evolution of inequality.
0: Yeah, so at a conceptual level, what we're calling labor rents are essentially the part of production, the value of production that workers receive that is beyond uh, what they would receive in. A labor market without any worker power and at the most simple level the way you can think about this is let's say that the firm you're working at has a very snazzy new production technology no one else has and so that firm is able to make profits that are greater than other firms those profits are going to be divided up between workers and shareholders in the firm. And the share of those profits that the workers receive, we can conceive of in some sense as rents, because it's something that those workers are getting that is above and beyond what they would be getting with doing exactly the same job at some other firm. Um, Now, that's that's at the highest level of what this concept is. Um, The way we measure it in practice is a little more... Um, removed from that because it's very hard to measure that factor in practice. So what we do in practice is we do three things. We say first, unionized workers are more likely to receive rents. That's because union bargaining power enables workers to collectively bargain over those profits their firm generates and share in them. And so we estimate the wage premium that unionized workers earn relative to non-unionized workers. And that premium we call rents. And we do the same for workers in highly paid industries. So conventionally, highly paid industries have been things like manufacturing, things like transportation. If you take an identical worker and put them in a highly paid versus a low paid industry, what that difference is partly represents rents, similar for large and small firms. And um, when we measure this concept of labor rents and try and add it up, what we find is that it's been declining substantially since the early 1980s and um, the reasons that you might think of this declining are kind of in many buckets, some of which are formal and some of which are informal. So the key concept here in labour rents, as opposed to a different, say a competitive model of the labour market, is that if you have a model of the labour market that's completely competitive, what that means is that a a specific worker, if you put them anywhere in any firm, is going to be earning the marginal product of labour. and so. The firm that the worker's at and the uh, bargaining structure and the degree of worker power that the worker has, it, it doesn't make that much difference to the distribution of income and to other macroeconomic outcomes. But if you have less than perfectly competitive labor markets and you also have less than perfectly competitive product markets where firms are selling their products and services, um, you have these rents that are generated that are then there for workers and firms to bargain over. And that means that power can play a role, that institutions can play a role and that norms and regulations can play a role in determining the distribution of income and various other macroeconomic factors that flow from that. And so that's why this concept of rents is important to understanding all of these bigger macro phenomena, we think.
1: So we understand that the type of firm, the type of industry where workers is employed and whether they are union members or not would matter in measuring these rents. So I wanted to ask you, what are the data you use to quantify these labor rents in the aggregate labor market?
0: Um, We use the Current Population Survey, the CPS, which is a really great resource, publicly available survey of Um, us workers it's nationally representative in fact not just workers people but we're using employed people in our survey um and everyone's able to use it and it goes back i mean the data that's easy to access goes back until 1973 for us we're going back until 1982 because that's the first year where we've got all the variables we need like union membership and using that data, you essentially have tens of thousands of individuals in each year and you have lots of details about them, their demographics, their occupation, their industry, their education level, their uh, well, gender is part of demographics, their location. And so you can estimate what are all the different factors that affect their wage. We know that occupation, gender, education, location will affect your wage. And then we can estimate what is the incremental impact of union, your industry, your firm size, and how does that affect and how, how can we use those to measure rents? There's a bit of a caveat about the data in that we don't have data on very high earning workers in this data set. And that's because the CPS data um, top codes incomes. So if you've got income above a certain level, it doesn't disclose that income because it's concerned about privacy. It doesn't want to reveal anyone's individual identity. And so when we're talking about declining worker power and we're trying to measure it, you can think that we're really talking about The majority of workers, like the bottom 90%, the bottom 95%, but we're not thinking about those very top-earning workers, particularly people in management, particularly people in finance or other top-paid industries, who actually maybe haven't seen their rents decline over this period, and maybe it's gone the other way.
1: La minute technique. So in this podcast, researchers take about one minute to try to explain one technical aspect of their research. And I wanted to ask you if you could walk us through your estimation of these labor rents in simple terms.
0: Yes, absolutely. So the common way to estimate how much different factors matter for your wage in economics is called a mincer regression. And the idea of that is that you regress the wage that a worker earns, on their different characteristics, their gender, their age, their education, perhaps their race, perhaps their location, occupation, industry, union status. And if you have a big enough sample size, you can estimate on average across the workforce, what is the contribution of each of these different factors in determining how much you get paid. And so we estimate that across all the workers in our data since 1982 for each year, and using that, we can estimate in each year what was the union wage premium. So what was the contribution of being a union member to your wage in 1982 versus in 2019? What was the large firm wage premium? So how much more did an identical worker get paid if they worked at a big company versus a small company? And what was the industry wage premium for different industries? How much more did a manufacturing worker get paid than an otherwise identical worker in a retail firm? And In doing those estimates, in estimating those incremental contributions, we can then add them up across all the workers that are in those industry, in the unions or in large firms in each year. And that gives us the total quantity of labor rents over time. So we see rents decline uh, over time because of each of those component pieces declining over time.
1: So once you compute these labor rents and you actually observe and document the decline in the labor market, there are some interesting patterns that you observe in the economy associated to these declines. What do you find?
0: One of the most striking things that we find and that I was, you know, struck by when I actually ran the ran the regressions and computed this is that the decline in labor rents that we estimated is about as big in aggregate as the decline in the labor share. In the non-financial corporate sector of the U.S. economy. So that declined by about six percentage points of net domestic product between 1982 and 2016, which is the period we look at. And the decline in labor rents, as we estimate them from this method I've described, was about the same size. And there's no reason why they would have ended up being the same size. There's no reason that our methodology should have mapped to that. And so it's really interesting and compelling to see that the decline in labor rents was big enough by this methodology to explain the whole decline in the labor share. And that lends some kind of credibility to the idea that um, declining worker power could be behind this decline in the labor share. There's also really interesting industry-level patterns. And that was another thing that I found very compelling and quite interesting, which is we then calculate the decline in labor rents within industries And within states, and compare those to the decline in the labor share in industries and in states. And we find very strong evidence that industries with bigger declines in labor rents and states with bigger declines in labor rents were also the ones that saw bigger declines in their labor share. So, again, lending credibility to this idea that the decline in worker power has been a big factor behind the decline in the labor share of income. And um, the final thing on that that I think is interesting is that declining labor rents in given industries has also been associated with this rise in corporate valuations and profitability that I talked about at the start. So one of the big macro trends we wanted to explain was the labor share. The evidence lines up very well. But another was this rise in corporate valuations and profitability. And we find that the industries with bigger declines in their labor rents saw bigger rises in Tobin's Q, which is a measure of the stock market valuation of your company relative to the value of your assets, and it's essentially it's a measure of what kind of excess profits, in some in some sense, firms may be earning, shareholders may be receiving, and so to see that rise is what you would expect if labor rents fell.
1: One popular alternative explanation uh, that we see in the literature is that these uh, macro trends of the labor share that you just talked about are explained by an increase in monopoly power. How do your results speak to these alternative mechanisms?
0: Yeah, this was one of the like, questions that we really set out to investigate, is to compare this explanation with the declining worker power explanation. So the rising monopoly power argument is basically that, that, as follows. There's been a rise in monopoly power in the economy in product markets. So firms are now able to have a higher markup. That is, they're able to sell their products at a higher margin over cost, basically. And and that higher markup translates into higher profits for firms as a result of this monopoly power. The higher profit for firms under an assumption that worker power doesn't change, means that most of that profit accrues to shareholders and therefore the share of total income going to shareholders rises, share of total income going to labor falls. So the labor share falls, profitability of companies rises because their monopoly power has risen. And so because the macro facts are that the labor share has fallen and profitability of companies has risen, This monopoly power explanation became very popular as an a priori explanation that fits the data. So the thing that we wanted to have a look at is, to what extent does the monopoly power explanation have more or less explanatory power than the worker power one? And on the macro level, each of them could both explain these facts, declining labor share, rising profitability of capital. But on the industry level, what we see is that industries that saw increases in their concentration we were not necessarily the industries that saw the biggest declines in their labor share um, or the biggest rises in their queue, their measures of profitability and valuations. Concentration is not a perfect measure of monopoly power. Concentration is the idea that as, as the effective number of firms in a market falls, those firms have more monopoly power. And so it's one indicator. It's not the only one. But we we found that compelling and interesting in saying, OK, well, our measure of labor rents is very has very strong explanatory power across industries for the decline in the labor share. But this rising concentration doesn't have that strong explanatory power for the decline in the labour share across industries or for the rises in corporate profitability and valuations.
1: found particularly interesting in your work is how you relate the evolution of labor rents to unemployment. Can you tell us more about that?
0: Yeah, so in um, most but not all models of how worker power plays out in a macroeconomic sense, you expect higher worker power to come alongside higher unemployment. And there are two reasons why that would be the case, or might be the case. One reason is, and this is the kind of intuitive reason many people think about, is that higher worker power uh, means workers are going to bargain for higher wages and higher wages makes it more expensive for firms to hire people. And so in equilibrium, firms create fewer jobs and therefore there's less employment and more unemployment. So that's one reason why you would expect a decline in the worker power to perhaps decrease unemployment. Another reason is that in a world where I could get a good job or a bad job, there's a dispersion of different types of jobs that I could get as a worker. I might wait longer when I'm searching for a job to try and find that good job. So, for example, if I am a worker with a high school education and it's possible that I can get a good unionized manufacturing job that pays a middle class salary, or I can take a job working the checkout at my local retail store, I might wait longer in unemployment in order to try and get that better manufacturing job. If worker power in manufacturing declines, the manufacturing jobs become just as bad as the retail job, there's no point in me waiting around for a good job when it's not going to come and I'll just take any job that comes up. And so that's another reason why, as worker power is higher, you might expect unemployment in equilibrium to be higher. And it's for this this mechanism of what people call weight unemployment or search unemployment because you're waiting for the better jobs to come around. So both of these models would predict that that declining worker power might come alongside declining average unemployment. And in particular, alongside the decline in average unemployment without inflationary pressure. And that's the other side of it, is what we've seen is declining unemployment without inflation. The idea there, of course, is that if workers have a lot of bargaining power, then when there's low unemployment, they can bargain up wages. And you might get a a wage price price spiral that generates inflation. If workers have less bargaining power, um, they're less likely to bargain up wages, even if unemployment is low. And so you get less inflationary pressure. And we do find some evidence to support that idea. So again, we have measures of labour rents at the state level and at the industry level. And when we look at the states and the industries with the biggest declines in labour rents over time, we also see that those were the states and industries on average with the biggest declines in average unemployment over time. So that would tend to support the idea that at least some of the decline in average unemployment nationally might be explained by this decline in worker power as well.
1: So we understand that the decline in labor rents can explain several important features of the American economy, but there are also other competing explanations such as globalization, technical change. What does your analysis say about that?
0: So I think the first thing to say is that obviously these factors have played a role. Globalisation has completely transformed how economies work. Technological change has completely changed the types of jobs people do and the way production is organised. They clearly matter. But the question we want to answer is how much do they matter for these trends that we are interested in, Um, particularly the decline in the labour share, the rise in corporate profits and valuations and the change in unemployment. And I think one of the rationales by which you would say it's, probably got to be an explanation that's got some aspect of rents or non-competitive behavior in it is because of this rising corporate profits and valuations. So globalization and technological change could, in principle, explain the decline in the labor share. And the idea there would be that, in some sense, the ability to outsource jobs and or the ability to replace workers with machines, under some assumptions, can reduce the share of income that workers have. But there's no reason to expect that to increase corporate profitability, to increase stock market valuations. These are explanations that are premised on the idea of a competitive labor market, or at least no change in competition, a labor and product market. So that's one reason why I think the globalization, technological change hypotheses aren't explaining everything. But another, another point that I think really surprised me, actually, when I looked in the data, is if globalization was doing all the work in terms of declining labor shares and worker power, you'd expect manufacturing industries that were the most exposed to globalisation to be the ones that saw the biggest declines in labour shares and labour rents. And actually, when we look at that, they weren't. So when we look over 1989 to 2007, that's the period that our data allows for this, and we look at the decline in labour rents, the decline in labour shares and the decline in unionisation in manufacturing industries, the ones that were most exposed to low-wage import competition over this period, so think about textiles, apparel, furniture, you know, you're know, you being very exposed to competition from places like China, Vietnam, um, Central America, those were not the ones with the biggest declines in their labour rents, because in fact those were already not the really high-paid manufacturing industries to begin with by the 80s. In fact, the declines in labour rents were more in the manufacturing industries that weren't that exposed to low-wage import competition and globalisation. And similarly, if you look across countries, the U.S. has seen a particularly large decline in its labor share relative to other countries, but all countries have been affected by globalization and technological change. So there's a a wedge you have to explain by some U.S.-specific factors, Uh, and one of them we think is that the decline in worker power has been much stronger in the U.S. than in other countries.
1: So I wanted to ask you about your views on the policy implications of this research and how do typically these evolution explain the recent increase like that has been well documented the increase in inequality in the US and what we can do about that yeah
0: so policy is obviously by nature a bit more speculative because we're looking forward into an economy you know where the structure is different than it was in the 1930s where really the last kind of new labor architecture was created in the US but having said that i do think that what this suggests is that big changes in the way institutions and norms around labor and worker power function would be needed to reverse these trends. We saw you know, this decline in the labor share happen as unionization in the private sector declined from one in four workers to six percent of workers. You know, That's an enormous decline. It's basically the evisceration of unions In total in the private sector. And we saw other changes in norms and values, the rise of shareholder capitalism and the idea of shareholder value maximization being the prime focus of companies, the prime social responsibility of companies, and the rise of financial mechanisms that promote that. And so in some sense, I would say a reversal, not necessarily to the institutions of the past, but to some of the the values of the past in terms of organizations that formally promote worker power, A reinvigoration of unions perhaps bargaining at a sectoral or industrial level as happens in continental europe rather than a firm level but thinking about worker power in the also in the management of firms also in the boardroom as ways to promote you know a more inclusive concept of capitalism that focuses on promoting the value for workers as stakeholders and not just shareholders
1: So before we wrap up, I wanted to ask you if you had a recommendation for our listeners of a book, a movie or anything you would like to share with us.
0: Yeah, I mean, this was hard to pick just one. So one of the books I just love since I discovered it in a used bookstore several years ago now is a book called Working by Studs Terkel. And it's an old book, um, but he went around and interviewed workers about their jobs. And it is literally just written down, condensed words of workers about their jobs and it is amazing and pulls you into these different worlds some of which still exist you know a construction laborer's job is pretty similar now than it was 50 years ago some of which don't exist at all like a telephone switchboard operator but you get to understand what do people really value in their work and how does their work affect their life and how do they feel about the social value they're contributing through work and how do they feel about their boss and their pay and i think you know sometimes you can just get stuck in these big macro level narratives and data and this really anchors you to the human side of everything that we
1: study thank you so much anna for joining me today thank you so much this was inequality talks a podcast recorded by clémentine venefonte in toronto music is by the count thanks for listening and stay tuned for the next episode